Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm Joey Lovato, the multimedia editor here at the Indie. On this week's episode of Indie Matters, reporter Michelle Rendells sits down with Sandy Anderson, the executive director of the Nevada Board of Massage Therapy, to talk about sex trafficking, an issue that's plagued the industry and that became an issue of broad public concern after the owner of the New England Patriots, Robert Kraft, was arrested in Florida on charges of soliciting sex acts at a massage parlor. Later on in the show, reporter Riley Snyder is debriefed about a recent story he wrote about cash bail in Nevada, its effects on defendants, and a lawsuit before the Supreme Court. But first, I want to tell you about a few big stories on our site this week. Reporter Jackie Valley showed up to the first day of school for elementary, middle, and high schoolers to give us a glimpse inside the Clark County School District, where there's a teacher shortage at the school year's kickoff. Intern Michaela Chesson was in court this week reporting on continued hearings in a lawsuit brought by companies disputing their rejected applications for marijuana dispensary licenses after the Department of Taxation rejected them last December. And reporter Riley Snyder reported on public defenders in Clark County seeking more generous plea deals for defendants after the district attorney gave a tech billionaire, Henry Nicholas, a generous plea deal after his arrest on several counts of felony drug trafficking. All right, now on to the rest of the show. We're here today with Sandy Anderson. She's the executive director of the Nevada State Board of Massage. Thanks so much for being on the podcast with us, Sandy. You're welcome. Uh, First of all, tell us a little bit about how you got to uh, be at the head of the massage board. Well, it it started a long time ago. I've been a massage therapist for 25 years. I've taught at TMCC in their massage program for 18. And then about eight years ago, I started working for the state as well as doing massage. And I was down in Carson City working in the regulatory end of business and industry and loved it, just loved the work. So when the position opened up at the massage board, I applied and surprise, surprise, I got hired. (laughs) And you've been in the role for how long? Three years. Um, We're here because we met at a seminar for basically human trafficking and what the Reno area is doing to kind of combat sex trafficking. And of course, we've seen in recent months that massage has become at the forefront of this conversation. Um, one Correct. of the big things was the, the Robert Kraft situation, owner of the Patriots, that was caught in Jupiter, Florida, right. uh, patronizing basically a massage parlor, and it was a front for some sex trafficking. That's correct. Um, we also saw in the legislature this year, there was some discussion about this, some bills advanced to try to get at this problem. But first of all, let's talk about kind of what the difference is between now, we, we're using the term massage parlor when we mean an illicit uh, establishment. establishment. Tell right. us a little bit about the terminology you use. So in, in our industry, we call them massage establishments. It might be a spa. It might be a single operator that just does massage by herself in a small office. It could be a huge spa like on the Strip down in Las Vegas. But all of those for us are establishments. The parlors, as they're referred to nationwide, that really is more the illicit activity, and that's an establishment where additional services are provided that a licensee cannot perform. Those services are illegal according to our statutes, and disciplinary action can result from someone who practices any kind of a sex act in the treatment room. So we see this uptick lately of the illicit establishments. We're still calling them establishments in our industry, but um, nationwide they have been referred to as massage parlors because they are illicit 
places where prostitution is going on. And that's what Kraft was arrested, was at one of those locations. The Polaris Project, which is a sex trafficking awareness organization, has estimated there's as many as 9,000 establishments that are being friends for prostitution. That's what their report says. Does that number sound right to you, depending on your understanding of what's going on in Nevada? Based on my understanding of what's going on in Nevada, in Reno, we have at least 25 that we're working on. So Reno's one little town, really. I mean, we're a small city. Vegas, we figure we're probably closer to somewhere between 150 and 200 establishments that are questionable. Not that we can prove yet that stuff's going on, but that are questionable and under our radar. So if if that's one state, 225, 50 states, we could easily be at a pretty high number. And Polaris has been researching this a long time. Now, when we're talking about these places, I mean, are the practitioners licensed and the establishments licensed? Many times, the the establishments many times have business licenses within the municipalities that they're operating. The practitioners may have a local business license as well as a state massage therapy license, although sometimes they don't. Last night, we had an operation down in Las Vegas where we went to a a reported unlicensed activity location and three citations were issued for unlicensed activity. So working with Metro, we went out, unlicensed activity was occurring and the board cited those women that were not performing massage with a license. Tell us a little bit about the role of the board versus the role of law enforcement in really cracking down on on this kind of activity. So the board's role is pretty limited. Statute and the legislature gives us the authority to license a therapist and to have an establishment certificate, which means we go in and we inspect and we make sure that that establishment is meeting health and hygiene guidelines that are set forth by the state, right? So that's our scope, licensing the women or men that are practicing massage throughout the state, certifying that the establishment meets the health and hygiene standards. And that's really all our scope is. So we don't really have any authority over the human trafficking piece. If a person presents to us, they've completed adequate education, they have a clear background check with no prior arrests, and um, they're asking to be licensed within the state, or maybe they've been licensed in another state, so they're being sort of moved in through endorsement, those individuals get a license. We can't say, we're not going to give you a license. If you meet the criteria, we have to give you a license. Law enforcement's piece is more on the human trafficking side. So the board works with Homeland Security, FBI, immigration, which is part of Homeland Security. We work with local law enforcement statewide to address when we identify a location that potentially might have human trafficking in it. So when we go in to do that compliance inspection and we're making sure that they're meeting health and hygiene standards, we may find women living on site. When we find that, then we report that to local law enforcement or we call code enforcement and say, you know, code enforcement, look, we have a shower in a bathroom that was never plumbed for a shower. We have lots of food in the break area the refrigerator is fully stocked we have six suitcases in the back room three beds which there really shouldn't be any beds for them to be sleeping on when we have all that then we tend to go okay they're probably living here 
they're not supposed to be. So then we go to code enforcement for that municipality and let them address the violations of code enforcement because that's their area. And then if we have a practitioner who is performing a sex act, then we cite that practitioner and proceed with the attorney general's office with a hearing. You mentioned that you guys suspect there's somewhere like 225 uh, establishments that could potentially be fronts for prostitution. Right. But it sounds like it's not easy to to get a sex trafficking conviction on these and and you kind of have to work around the edges. Um, Tell us about the challenges. I I mean, is it a lack of a law or are they just very stealthy at at getting away? They're extremely stealthy. They're educated individuals. They're in business. It's a business that makes a lot of money. So they can diversify fairly quickly. When we identify a location where we think something's going on and we go out and and inspect and we find all those key indicators, you might call them, that perhaps somebody's living there, maybe they're being trafficked or, or maybe they live in Las Vegas and they're working in Reno for three days and then they're going back down to Las Vegas. They're being worked in both cities. That's sometimes one of the things we see. Then we have to kind of come in and address the licensee and whether or not they're practicing correctly. So we may send in undercover. It just depends. So you guys have folks that are undercover inspectors. We, we have people that we use for undercover operations. We also work with Metro and RPD to do undercover operations. Is, are there enough laws and, and regulations to help you guys do your job effectively? And, you know, we just saw in the session there was you know, at least one bill that sort of addressed this. That was Jill Tolles' right. AB 166. Yes, AB 166 was very beneficial. But again, that isn't our jurisdiction. That's law enforcement's jurisdiction. So tightening up some of our jurisdiction is one of the things we're doing. We're in the process of a regulatory change right now. And we have our workshops slated for August 15th. So we'll be discussing how to tighten up our laws. And we're working with the Attorney General's office to still staying within our tiny scope, increasing our regulatory focus to help address some of these issues, making sure that we can actually address some of the violations of law that are occurring. So that'll, that'll be beneficial, I think, for the board and, and give us a little bit more teeth into this epidemic that we're kind of experiencing. As a consumer, what do people need to be looking for to ensure they're not patronizing a place <laughs> where people are being, you know, trafficked or, or, or right. there's illegal prostitution going on? Right. I, I would say the, the first thing to look for is licensure. That doesn't ensure that they won't be a trafficked individual because there are people who have licenses that are trafficked. But the state board has a license for massage therapy, reflexology, and structural integration. Anyone with that license has a paper license as well as a card, and they can use that as an identifier that this person is probably a legitimate massage therapist. If the person doesn't have their card, they're not legitimate, right? They don't have a license. They can also go onto our website Say they decide they're going to book a massage somewhere, wherever, and they know who their therapist is going to be. Go to the state board website and check verify a license, type in that person's name, and see if they actually have one. And that's 
really a good way to protect yourself. The other way is to look at the business itself. Is it clean, right? Is it, is it an establishment that has, say, maybe pictures of trigger points or muscle charts or something that makes it seem like it's a professional massage therapist? That's something to look for. We certainly have really good luck with the casino spas. All of those have great records of not having issues with sex in the treatment room. So going to any of the casino spas that are located in any of the communities within Nevada, really all of those we've had great inspections at. The other thing to really kind of use caution with would be if you see advertising that looks questionable to you. We've had the quote unquote red light district in Nevada forever. You know, prostitution is legal here in all but Washoe County and Clark County. So when people come to Nevada, they think it's legal. It's legal everywhere, but it's not. It's illegal in Clark County and Washoe County. But in both of those municipalities, we do see establishments that still do the flashing neon red light that says massage. And that for me is a pretty good indicator that I need to pay attention. It may still be an okay place, but it also may not. So that's one of the things that I kind of look for. And then when you're talking to the massage therapist, if it's a private practice, they should have a health history form. They should care about whether or not you have any contraindications for massage. And there are some where we can't perform massage. So they should have a health history form. They should talk to you about your health. They should ask you about where you need addressed, what muscle groups are bothering you, if you have pain in your shoulder, your back, or whatever. A therapist that asks those kinds of questions is probably a legitimate therapist. A therapist that just wants to get you on the table really quick, probably not. And the therapist should always give you privacy when you're undressing, always. What's been the success rate in being able to shut down these establishments that you suspect of being problems? The success rate is very low, and that's a problem, but it's getting better. We're, we're changing how we approach it. We're doing a team approach, especially with the city of Reno. They are very, very cooperative. Business licensing is working with us. Code enforcement is working with us. RPD is working with us. The mayor has an initiative to address human trafficking. There's, there's a lot of work being done in the city of Reno to address this issue. And that is super supportive of what we're trying to do on our end as well. And we've been invited to the table to work with that team. So that part is, is really good. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sandy. We really appreciate all your insights into this issue. Absolutely. This is Michelle Rindell's reporter for the Nevada Independent. I'm here with my colleague, Riley Snyder. We're going to talk about a story that Riley published on Wednesday on the site, and it was about a lawsuit that is going to go before the Nevada Supreme Court, and it has to do with the way Nevada does bail. Uh, So just for some background, this issue of cash bail was a major point of debate during the legislative session. Uh, There were groups that really had prioritized trying to get rid of get rid of the use of money in bailing people out of jail. Now, this went really nowhere. You wrote a lot about it. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened 
in the legislative session as it relates to bail. Yeah, there was a lot of efforts, protests outside the legislature, movement by activists to try and curtail or change the system of requiring criminal defendants in a court case after they're arrested to have to pay some amount of money to post a bail through either a bail bondsman or through themselves for release before trial starts. So this has been kind of a movement nationally. Uh, It came up in the 2019 legislature. And as you said, it didn't go very far. There was a pretty ambitious bill that died, I think, at one of the deadlines. There was sort of a last minute revival, a major amendment that got dropped in the last week and then failed to make it out of the Senate. And ultimately, the only thing the legislature did was pass a resolution calling for a study between now and 2021 on the overall issue of pretrial detention, including the use of cash bail. And the basic argument is that if you're rich, you're basically going to spend no time in prison before your trial. But if you're poor, this could be the difference between your freedom and and being in prison for months. So I want to get to the story that you wrote today. Basically, what's going on here is there's a man named Jose Valdez Jimenez. Um, He's a 58-year-old guy from Miami. Tell me a little bit about his case. So his case is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, He was uh, accused, and it's pretty clear that he went to a bunch of Victoria's Secret stores in a Macy's in the Las Vegas area in 2018, put a bunch of merchandise like leggings and whatever into a plastic bag and walked out without paying. So he was arrested and charged with uh, 10 counts of burglary um, on various amounts, depending on like which how much he took from which store. So the case is pretty straightforward. Uh, he pled guilty on Tuesday. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing and why we're talking about this is because he got assessed a $40,000 bail after uh, his criminal indictment was returned. He was never in court for this. There was never a judge saying, we've determined it's uh, the best for him to stay in jail for this long or for him to be released on these conditions. He just got a $40,000 bail. So if this guy had the money, he could have posted bail and left. He doesn't have the money to post the $40,000 bail or enough for a bail bondsman to cover it. So for the past 450 odd days, he's been in the Clark County Detention Center as members of the Public Defender's Office have tried to fight this case and others like it as part of this overall legal challenge uh, to the bail system in Clark County. So so I'm understanding this correctly. What happens is this grand jury goes over the evidence, looks at the videos, deliberates for three minutes, and decides he should be charged with burglary. And then without him present, Judge Elizabeth Gonzalez just says it should be $40,000 bail, and, and he's not there. His lawyers are not there. There's no hearing on this. It's just set. His lawyers might be there, and he might be there, but it's more that... It starts with the prosecutor asking for a bail amount, and the judge has the discretion to set the bail amount. But what the public defender's office wants and why they're bringing this case and highlighting this one is they're saying there should be a determination, some kind of hearing or proceeding where a judge says either we think this person needs to be in custody for public safety reasons or out of custody because we've determined like it's, you know, again, the the big thing about this is that this is all pretrial detention. This is innocent before being proven guilty. Um, There are a lot of conditions they can put, like home monitoring or uh, daily check-ins or weekly check-ins, but they want all of that before uh, going towards the use of cash bill and just requiring someone to have to to post uh, a monetary figure to be able to get out of prison. So they don't want a judge to just default to, I'm going to choose a number. They want there to be a discussion on whether cash is even appropriate to begin with and whether this person is a public safety threat uh, and whether there are other things that could be done to ensure that person shows up to court. Is that 
correct? Yeah, and they've been um, a little hesitant on saying, you know, we want the Supreme Court to strike down this law, this law, and this law. They've said, we just want some kind of order or some kind of ruling saying that the way the system currently works is unconstitutional under the federal constitution, which guarantees you the right to to release before um, being convicted of any crime. Now, the party that's sort of against this is the Clark County District Attorney's Office. Tell me what they have said on this push to eliminate cash bail. So the the DA's office has been sort of opposing this on a couple of grounds. They've opposed it on procedural grounds. They said in this particular case with Mr. Valdez Jimenez, he has 23 former felonies in Florida. He has like 22 uh, different birthdays, aliases, four different social security numbers that he's used. So they said he is a flight risk. He has at least two cases of not showing up to court after being released on his own recognizance. So they opposed it on those grounds. When the the case was appealed to the state Supreme Court, they appealed it also on more, I guess, legalistic grounds and said the current system is fair. Um, at any point, he could have petitioned to go before the judge and ask for his bail amount to be reduced or uh, lowered. So they said there has always been options available. They pointed towards a whole host of other uh, cases in district courts throughout the country where similar systems of bail were found to be constitutional. And then they in one interesting motion said that that the lawsuit was a pet project of these two attorneys with the Clark County Public Defender's Office, that they're just kind of obsessed with this issue, that there's no need to kind of tackle the issue of bail, no overarching public need to do it, just that it's these two people's passion project. So they've kind of been tackling it from a lot of different angles, but they've been pretty united in their opposition. Do we know who the two attorneys he's singling out is? Yeah. Uh, so the two attorneys are Christy Craig and Nancy Lemke. They're both uh, deputy uh, public defenders with the Clark County Public Defender's Office. They've sort of been working on this project since 2017, and they've brought uh, several similar suits that they've appealed. They said they filed hundreds of motions um, just to try and get this before the state Supreme Court. So uh, the case that will be heard in September in oral arguments is kind of a consolidated case between this one and I think one other one of a, of a guy who was in a similar circumstance where he couldn't post the bail that a judge gave him. I think that we have been so saturated in this world of, of bail that uh, it's hard to understand what would it look like if you didn't have bail and you didn't have you know bonds that are being posted and, and, and this is a guarantee that people are going to show up to court. So for those uh, that are listening, can you kind of tell what are other techniques that are used maybe in other states that have gone through this and reduce the role of cash bail in their criminal justice systems. Yeah, so a lot of what uh, the arguments center around is trying to move the current system to more of the federal system. Um, right now in the federal system, a judge will determine either you should be remain in custody until your trial, you present enough of a danger to yourself, others or the community that you need to remain in custody, or you can be released without conditions, which is often called own recognizance police, uh, release. Uh, where you're just expected to show back up to court uh, for your trial dates or any other legal dates you have, or there's the conditions, which you mentioned. So that could be anything from a daily check-in, a weekly check-in, uh, an ankle monitoring bracelet. There's a whole host of, of tools and things that are used right now, currently, because this is offered to um, some people. It's not the standard, but it is offered to some people in the criminal justice system in Clark County as uh, tools and ways to ensure that they're not posing a flight risk, posing a threat to themselves or others, um, but still allowing them to be released before their trial starts. You mentioned in your story a bunch of statistics. Uh, people that are incarcerated in Clark County Detention Center um, and how many people, you know, on any given day are sitting there with a 
a relatively small bail amount. Can you kind of walk us through what you get from those statistics? Yeah, so generally on any given day, there's a little bit over 4,000 people in the Clark County Detention Center, which is the biggest detention center in the state. And several dozens to hundreds of those will be people who are in in the detention center behind bars because they can't afford the bail that was assessed to them. And I think in the story it mentions that there's 30 people right now who are given a bail amount of $1,000 or less. Um, They're just there because they can't afford to post the bail. And this has been the argument that the public defender's office has made both uh, in filings for this case and during the legislative session that if, you know, you arrest a homeless man and give him a bail of $1,000, he can find a bail bondsman who will post that bail for him for $100 or $150. But he doesn't have $150. It might as well be a million dollars. It doesn't matter when um, you have indigent defendants who just can't afford any of this. This is another one of their big arguments is that when judges set these bail amounts, and especially in this case with Valdez Jimenez, um, no consideration was given to whether or not he could actually pay the bail amount. Their argument has been the judges made a determination that he's safe to release to the community if he can post this bail amount without consideration if he could actually pay it. So in their mind and in their argument, this is uh, essentially a de facto detention order. So they've de facto sentenced him to 450 days in jail without ever actually doing that in the in the course of law and having an ability to try to fight that in a court. And this is all happening before anyone goes to trial. So this is just people waiting around for the court to do something and, and just sitting in jail. So that's the the other big argument, and what has kind of complicated this case is that he reached a plea deal, uh, Valdez Jimenez, with prosecutors. Um, so they negotiated the 10 charges down to one charge. He's not going to become a habitual criminal, which carries additional penalties. So there was another uh, very similar, same plaintiff, same case uh, in federal court, which was... Um, declared moot because federal courts can't rule on pretrial detention once someone uh, is found guilty or um, pleads guilty in a criminal case. That's not the same rules in Nevada. I guess the rules depend on whatever the state or local jurisdiction is, but that's been a complicating factor. And one of the things that will come up during the oral arguments is whether or not this whole discussion should be be considered moot because he's already pled guilty. He's no longer in pretrial detention. And just so people understand, there are cases when no bail is set, right? I mean, that's that's when it's a public safety concern, like someone is a murderer or accused, you know, suspected murderer, and they'll say, this is not bailable. You, you could pay all the money you want and you're not going to get out, right? Mm-hmm. So in the case that you're describing with, with Mr. Valdez Jimenez, it really was a case where they said there is not that public safety concern we would let you out if you did have this money. Yeah. And in later filings, again, the district attorney's office said like, well, he has all these other issues about having a long rap sheet, having not showed up to court before. But their argument has always been like, this should have been like an initial determination before we put this guy in detention for 450 days without him ever being uh, convicted or pleading guilty to a crime. Yeah. Yeah. So you could say, oh, he deserves to be in jail because he he did this. But this, as you're saying here, is is before trial, before he was convicted. He's considered innocent and he's sitting in jail for well over a year. Yeah. And and just to put it in perspective, how much are taxpayers paying to house 
an individual for a day at that Clark County Detention Center. Well, it's a little hard to tell because the most recent uh, statistics I could find said around $130 a day. I've heard anywhere up to $150 or $180 per day per individual who is in the Clark County Detention Center. So outside of this case, just for folks who have like a $1,000 bail who might be there for weeks or months, that's you know thousands and thousands of dollars that Clark County and through Clark County taxpayers are helping pay for uh, just through this bail system. So Clark County has potentially paid more money to keep him in this jail than it would cost to to pay the full $40,000 bail. Yeah, and definitely more than the $100 of leggings and all that. But yeah, that's another argument that always comes up in these kinds of cases is just the cost of the state and to the system to um, have this guy behind bars for so long. You know, what struck me about that is he also said that he hadn't gotten help for the addiction which is sort of kind of what the legislature has been striving to do is, you know, if someone is stealing leggings to support a drug habit, then maybe it's important to address the underlying drug issue that this person is dealing with. I'll say this, there's a lot more conversations around diversion programs and helping people who might be addicts or uh, doing this behavior because they uh, are facing an addiction or some other sort of issue. As always, I think the issue is funding for these programs. I don't know if the issue of drug addiction never came up like in the grand jury proceedings or really anywhere until like the very end of the sentencing. So it's just, it's a, it's a very complicated issue. And, you know, it's sort of, this is in many ways, the individual facts of this case don't matter because they're just seeking a ruling on sort of this issue of bail because this comes up time and time again. But it's also, it's a very human part of it too, because this is a guy who's you know, asking a judge, like, please let me go because I don't want to, like, have my mom die and me be a disappointment to him. So there's a tension there that, that's kind of interesting to, to cover. Well, thanks, Riley, for uh, putting together a really thoughtful article on this issue and uh, look forward to your coverage on what happens at the Supreme Court. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Indie Matters. If you like this episode, you can find more just like it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, if you want to sponsor the podcast, email editors at theenvyindie.com. If you have any comments, criticism, or even praise for the podcast, you can email me at joey at theenvyindie.com. I'd like to thank Sandy Anderson for being on the podcast this week, as well as Riley and Michelle. I'm Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Next week.